0: Hello, friends. This is Ken Aldridge, Head of School. And in this edition of Quaker Matters Podcast, we hear from John Boniface, Class of 84. But before you listen to the podcast, I I want you to take a moment and reflect. At some point in your childhood, when you witnessed something that you knew in your heart and in the pit of your stomach was unjust, and simultaneously you knew you needed to step forward and do something about it, Hold on to that image. And now I want you to put it in the context of being an adult and needing to pursue that because this is your passion. This is what you feel called to do. John is an attorney specializing in constitutional law and voting rights, and he's the president and co-founder of Free Speech for People. In this engaging episode, you'll get to hear John talk about his experience at Friends his experience of finding the opportunity to speak out on others behalf and to advocate for them. I think you'll enjoy the podcast.
1: I think we're, what happens, uh, Jake, often is that we're in some ways as we go into our professional world and into college studies and graduate studies, we're, we're, we're kind of shaped and encouraged to, to be safer. Uh, in the way we act, and that can have uh, ramifications when it comes to standing up for justice and democracy, because it isn't always comfortable for those you're challenging, but also for those who are doing it. It's not always something that's, that's comfortable, but it matters, and it matters to people who often, you know, haven't had the opportunity to have their voices heard. Uh, so I think, you know, that that's something I'm proud of, but also one that I I continue to challenge myself where I can take those risks. Uh, and make a difference.
0: Hello, and
2: welcome to another episode of the Quaker Matters Podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by John Bonifaz, Wilmington Friends School, class of 1984. John is an attorney and political activist specializing in constitutional law and voting rights. He is currently the president and co-founder of Free Speech for People. John, how are you?
1: Good, Jake. How are you?
2: I'm doing well and really excited to speak with you today just about all the work that you have done and are currently doing. Um, But before we talk about your professional career and this great work that you really have dedicated your life to, I wanted to touch upon your time at Friends so when were you first introduced to wilmington friends school uh yes i
1: started there as a kindergartner and and was there through the 11th grade and the only reason why i didn't stay for my senior year is i decided to go early to college
2: although you graduated from friends close to 40 years ago do you still feel connected to the school
1: I, i do and i've gone to some of the alumni gatherings over the years even though i've moved out of the wilmington area but I I certainly feel very connected to my fellow students who I was with, some of whom were there as well, starting in kindergarten, others coming at different times. And to many of the teachers who impacted me over the years, uh, you know, there was a lot of influence that they had on making me who I am today.
2: A great segue to my next question. And I know that this might be hard to single out one or two specific teachers, but along the lines of teachers and their influence, who was that one coach or one teacher that that impacted you and and maybe the work that you're still doing to this day?
1: Sure and you're right. it's hard to single until uh, you know one teacher or even two but I'll, I'll give you a couple who certainly had a big impact on me. One was Violet Richmond uh, who of course for many years, uh, was the the music teacher there? Uh, you know, in terms of musicals and theater, um, she was a huge uh, supporter of my work in general, and not just in the arts, but also my political work as a student at, at Friends School. Um, and I, I really did appreciate all of her constant support and uh, cheerleading that, that she she did in boosting. Uh, me and give me the confidence to to do what I did. Uh, and Nona Smoall, who was the English teacher, uh, had a big influence on me too, and and was always energetic about me finding my voice and speaking out.
2: How do you feel that, you know, whether it was like those teachers providing that boost in confidence, how did you feel that your WFS education helped you later in life or sort of help prepare you for the career that? You've been on for a while now.
1: Well, I definitely think it provided me uh, the sense that I could raise my voice on critical issues that matter uh, to me and that I ought to try to be heard. You know, every time there was a, a meeting for worship where people were gathered, whether it was through the whole assembly or just as a class, you know, we were encouraged to speak our minds on matters that came to us uh, in that meeting. Um, and I often found myself being engaged in those meetings uh, in, in that way and and trying to speak up on issues that I cared about. I also, because of Terry McGuire and the Whittier, found my voice as well in terms of being able to write on critical issues of the day. And, you know, I was given this column, National International Editor, which is kind of funny for a, a local high school newspaper, but, but Terry was fine on me having that title. And, and I did write on a lot of national and international issues. So that that also provided that sense of confidence. But I would say in general, you, you know, the school instilled in all of us the idea that we were there beyond ourselves, that we had a role in society, that we ought to be concerned about what's happening beyond the school grounds. And there were a lot of different committees, you know, that I was a part of, including the committee to honor Dr. Martin Luther King on Martin Luther King Day long before it was a holiday.
2: I I guess so in doing and, and doing the prep for this interview was pretty fun for me just because I got to dig in the archives and just find a lot of the stuff that you were involved in. And you you founded the Human Cares uh, Committee and, and the purpose, and, and this is just quoting what was in the Whittier, was to involve students in the community and make them aware of social problems. And you talked about feeling empowered in the space that is and was Wilmington Friends School to speak out on these issues. I guess I'm just curious as to when did you first become aware that there were and still are so many problematic issues surrounding this uh, country as you know, early as ninth grade when I was able to read a lot of your stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that definitely first came about via my parents. You know, my father uh, was involved in working on behalf of migrant farm workers on the side, outside of his job at, at DuPont as a research scientist. He was involved in fighting for the rights of farm workers in Southeastern Pennsylvania. We lived in Chad's Ford, you know, across the state line. And my mother uh, was heavily involved in running a nonprofit cooperative that she founded to support low income artisans all across the country, some of whom were engaged in the civil rights movement, others came from Appalachia and, and were involved in, in much of the work there. So I was exposed at a very early age to these kinds of broader questions around who has power, who doesn't, whose voice is getting heard and whose voices are not. And and that certainly brought me you know to come to these kinds of questions when I was working with Whittier.
2: Did you feel like you accomplished your goal of making more students within the friends community like just more aware of these social issues?
1: I hope so. I mean certainly, you know, on the committees that I was a part of, we had a number of other students who were part of it. I also had started a chapter of Children's Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, uh, which included not just Wilmington Friends School students, but other area students. Um, And that was, you know, very much tied to a broader national movement for a freeze on the creation of nuclear weapons, development of nuclear weapons. So, you know, I, I think there were a lot of other students who were concerned about this and cared about it. And we worked together on many of these issues.
2: You, in 1981, you wrote a letter to Senator John East expressing your concerns about the S-158 bill, a bill that banned abortions. And again, as I mentioned to you offline, just thinking about someone writing this, let alone a ninth grader who, you know, many ninth graders are just consumed with themselves and are the person sort of next to them in class. I, I guess, was this mom and dad and sort of, you know, how they kind of let their life speak through the work that they were doing? Like, were they the people that empowered you to write this letter? Was it again, sort of the friends community?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I obviously don't remember the specifics of that of that particular letter. But I I would say that my parents certainly provided the context for uh, why I was concerned about these kinds of issues. Um, I, I, you know, I would say by that time by ninth grade, I was definitely uh, wanting to speak out on a number of matters, including uh, reproductive rights, and I was also active in the I, which, as you may know, was an independent youth newspaper that brought together uh, students from a number of schools, uh, and I was writing for that at the same time. So, you know, I was getting exposed more and more to questions of social justice and and democracy, and I'm sure I came across that bill and. I didn't like what that senator was doing and felt the need to write to him.
2: Do you remember if you received a response to the letter?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't remember if I received a response to that particular letter. Yeah.
2: So fast forwarding a bit to Harvard Law School you start a class action suit against the school because it lacked a sufficient minority presence in its faculty. And again, I'm, I'm kind of asking you all of the same questions in roundabout ways. I understand like why you would do this. I, I guess the courage to speak up when so many of us who might see the issue at hand, but just sit on the sidelines. So I, I guess what gave you the courage in this moment? Were you having conversations with classmates? Were you having conversations like with other professors? Just walk me through sort of the lead up and 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 then ultimately, uh, what ended up happening here?
1: Yeah, I mean, this was a collective effort by a number of students uh, representing a number of the groups on campus that sought to diversify the Harvard Law School faculty and and discrimination the hiring of our teachers. I I guess I first would say that you know I accept and understand that people are going to have different. you know, roads to when they decide they're going to find their voice and speak up. So I'm not suggesting that everybody has to start at a super early age, but I do think what we were finding there at Harvard Law School is there were a number of students that wanted to come together to challenge the way in which Harvard Law School was hiring its faculty. It was far too white, far too male for uh, too long and needed to diversify and catch up, frankly, to the number of students of graduating classes that had, you know, already passed by from Harvard Law School and and gone on to the legal profession who were far more diverse than the school's own faculty. So the idea that they couldn't even find from their own alumni base over a 30-year period, you know, a way to diversify the faculty was not credible. Uh, So we, we filed this lawsuit. We were engaged in other advocacy efforts, including demonstrations so forth. But we filed this lawsuit ourselves as students. We didn't have any uh, lawyers representing us. We did it what's known as pro se, when you don't have lawyers. Um, and we and we went into state court and we argued that the state anti-discrimination law was being violated by the school in the way they hired uh, their faculty. Um, and we ultimately got to the state Supreme Court on the question of whether or not we had the standing, which is a legal doctrine, whether you're directly harmed by the particular matter that you're uh, alleging is in violation of law and the argument that the school made was that we were not directly harmed that if teachers wanted to come forward to say they were discriminated against they had the right to do that but we as students did not now we of course argued on the other side and, and actually civil rights organizations from around the country joined us in that argument that students are also harmed when there's discrimination in the hiring of their teachers. But this particular state Supreme Court, which frankly included a number of Harvard Law alumni, uh, ruled against us, and we were not allowed to have standing in the case to pursue uh, the matter further.
2: What was your reaction when they ruled against you?
1: Well, I you know, first I should say that the reaction initially when we filed a case uh, was phenomenal, not just among those on the campus, but around the country who saw that this was a group of students willing to fight to diversify the faculty. And there were a lot of other law schools who were engaged in that kind of fight as well. Derrick Bell, who was the first African-American tenured law professor at Harvard Law School, was so inspired by these actions that he ended up taking a leave of absence from the school until they would hire a woman of color, which was not the only demand we had, but it was certainly one major uh, you know, deficiency in terms of the faculty. And he ultimately never came back um, to the school because they, you know, didn't move in time to make even that modest change. Uh, But ultimately, when when the ruling came down from the state supreme court, I think all of us who were involved, you know, we were disappointed that the state supreme court ruled the way they did, but we were proud that we had engaged in this two-year fight to hold the school accountable. And I would say that you know, not too long after that, there began to be some changes. Lonnie Guineer. Uh, famously came to school. She was, uh, you know, one of the first women of color. So, you know, I think I think there were changes uh, that were important that happened over the years, but I still think, you know, these law schools, including Harvard Law need to pay attention to how diverse they are on their faculty.
2: Continuing to look at your career as a law student, I heard you speak about an influential conference that occurred in Mississippi. In the year 1990 you were a third year law student at the time and you received a memorandum for this conference and you explained that this conference helped you understand the role that big money plays in politics i should say and that dr gwen patton's words were very powerful so just to help our audience how did this conference specifically help you understand the role that big money plays and why were Dr. Gwen Patton's words so powerful, so profound.
1: Yes, thank you. Uh, that, that it was a very influential conference. So what happened here is that in Waveland, Mississippi in 1990, a group of activists from the environmental field, from the peace uh, and disarmament field, from the civil rights field, they all got together uh, to meet and discuss how the question of big money in politics intersected with the question of voting rights. And Dr. Gwen Patton, who was a longtime civil rights worker from Montgomery, Alabama, uh, involved in the civil rights movement, she said at that conference, we have fought and died for the right to vote. But what good is that right if we do not have candidates to vote for? Getting private money out of politics, she continued, is the unfinished business of the voting rights movement. And that statement at that conference crystallized for those attending the need to reframe the question of money and politics as a voting rights issue of our time. So none of them were lawyers in that room. They, they were all activists from a non-legal background, but they ended up writing a, a memorandum, which they distributed to law professors and lawyers around the country, making the argument that there ought to be new uh, cases and new litigation brought forward to frame this fight around money and politics as a voting rights issue. And they got a fair amount of responses, all of which were, you know, not interested, including uh, one from a a, a well-known law professor at Harvard Law School at the time where I was attending, who said this would actually be frivolous uh, if you engage in this and it would result in Rule 11 sanctions, which is a form of sanctioning a lawyer for bringing a frivolous case. And he said he wouldn't even advise a student to write a paper on it. So, at the same time, his uh, response came back to this uh, group of activists. My response came back. I got a hold of the memorandum through one of the attendees there, Randy Keeler, who's a longtime peace activist, uh, who was part of that conference. And I said, I'd like to write my third year paper at Harvard Law School on this. So, I knew not to reach out to that particular law professor, but I found another professor who advised me on the paper. and, And that paper led to my work in challenging the current campaign finance system on voting rights grounds. I subsequently co-wrote a couple of law review articles with then-Professor Jamie Raskin, now Congressman Jamie Raskin, that made the case that this current system of campaign finance operates like a wealth primary, excluding non-vote, not wealthy voters and candidates on violation of equal protection and voting, right- voting rights grounds.
2: So when you get your hands on this and you write your Third year law paper, is this also serving as kind of a springboard for you into organizing the national voting rights? Absolutely. And- yeah, so, absolutely. You know-
1: that is what led me to start the National Voting Rights Institute. Once we had the argument laid out on the wealth primary theory, uh, I thought it was important to litigate it. And that was the primary reason for starting uh, that organization in 1994. And we did. We litigated it several times. we once again faced that standing barrier that the voters, our clients, and their candidate supporters, that they were not harmed in a direct way by the system. Obviously, we disagreed with that in every single case. But it it did actually serve, that litigation served to reframe uh, this question of money in politics as a voting rights question, as a political equality question. And many organizations today in this democracy space talk about the question of campaign finance from a political equality perspective now. And I think those roots go back to that litigation.
2: In your own words, can you describe the Supreme Court's ruling and the impact of their ruling in Citizens United versus FEC?
1: Yes, I mean, this was the ruling in in January 2010, five to four, in which the Supreme Court swept away a century of precedent barring corporate money in in our elections and allowed this new explosion of corporate interests uh, in our political process. Um, Now, this was a case that didn't even have to involve the sweeping away of that precedent. It dealt with a private nonprofit known as Citizens United, which sought to advertise a film they had made about Hillary Clinton in the 2008 election cycle, who was running for president at the time. Um, And they wanted to advertise And the question was, were there advertisements violating a technical provision of federal campaign finance law. But the Supreme Court held the case over. So usually a court decides a case when it hears it in that term, which ends every June, July of every year. They held it over to the next term, which started in October uh, of, of that uh, same year, uh, which was two, 2009. And they decided to rehear the question, uh, the case on a new question, of whether this century precedent should be overturned. so they they kind of took a case that was on a technical matter and they chartered it in, into a, a a whole new focus on whether corporate power can now dominate our elections. And recognizing that they were potentially going to go over the cliff and do this, uh, a, a former assistant attorney General at in Massachusetts and I, uh, his name's Jeff Clements. Uh, we got together to start. Free speech for people uh, to be ready if they went over the cliff to fight back and call for that ruling to be overturned via constitutional amendment.
2: So it's not a coincidence that Free Speech for People was founded on the day of this ruling. Correct.
1: We were planning it, unfortunately, because we saw the writing on the wall after the argument in the fall of two thousand
2: nine. So you all, you all were fully prepared for this.
1: We were. I mean, this was a sweeping decision that separated, you know, the the court from where it had been. For many decades, um, and you know, sadly, they're now there are now many examples of that with this current court in terms of how they're overturning longstanding precedent. But in this particular matter, you know, what it did was it, it created this explosion now of corporate influence in our elections. Corporations are not people. You know, they don't breathe, they don't eat, uh, they don't send their children to school or 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 have their kids go to war. But yet somehow the court has assigned them the rights that human beings have in, in the political process. And that makes absolutely no sense.
2: I guess I want you to go further there. Like, What over the last 13 years, what are the ramifications that we have seen because of this ruling?
1: Well, I think there's uh, two ways of looking at this. Number one, obviously, it's been a disastrous ruling in terms of the way in which it's allowed big money interest to drown out the voices of ordinary voters and ordinary citizens. That's been a disaster. And more and more uh, people feel disconnected from their local state and federal government because they feel the big money forces are in effect in control. Uh, The other way of looking at this, however, is it's, it's sparked a whole new democracy movement. There's a lot more people who are involved in fighting to reclaim our democracy as a result of the Citizens United ruling. And it's created, I think, a broader community of people who want to stand up and and say that Supreme Court needs to be overturned with a constitutional amendment, but also we need to fight on many other democracy fronts that are under attack.
2: Along those lines of getting more and more folks engaged, I know that a couple of your pillars for your organization, Free Speech for People, is to end big money in politics, to protect voting rights, to protect our elections. And, you know, I guess that coupled with the increased engagement Do you feel successful in your efforts, and and does it excite you to see that level of engagement continue to increase?
1: I I do, yeah. I definitely think that we have been proud to be part of a broader democracy movement in the country that continues to grow uh, every day in in the face of these fights around our democracy, which have uh, sadly emerged uh, in recent years to deal with a lot of threats uh, that we're facing.
2: As someone who has been fighting these democracy fights for 30, 40 years, does it ever wear on you? There are so many issues that you and your organization are trying to battle each and every day, some wins, some losses. I guess I'm just curious, how, how do you continue to stay positive in these moments?
1: Well, I guess I draw on two sources of inspiration to keep fighting. Number one is the history that comes before us of people who have fought uh, you know, to end slavery, to fight for civil rights, to fight for women's suffrage, to fight for labor rights. There's been movements throughout this country where people have come together up against huge odds, and, and they've won. Ultimately, they've won. It may have taken decades, but they've, they've achieved, uh, you know, the wins that that were focused with those movements. That doesn't mean the work is, is over, clearly. There's a lot more work to be done, but those movements have helped shown the way of how people coming together can make a difference and and not to give up. There wasn't any opportunity for any of those movements to give up. And had they given up, we wouldn't have had the the changes that we've seen in our history from that time period. But the other reason for the, uh, you know, changes or, or rather inspiration is the current movement that we have and the way in which people are fighting and engaging today. I mean, there's inspiration in and people standing up, up against odds today throughout the country uh, to fight for voting rights, to fight against big money in politics, to fight against insurrectionists who want to overturn our democracy. Uh, and all of that, I think, is inspiring for, for me as an individual to keep going.
2: One Quaker principle that seemingly... You practice every day is like the principle of comforting the afflicted and, and afflicting the comfortable. I guess how should everyone be doing this in their daily lives, or should people be doing this in in their daily lives?
1: I would definitely encourage people to do it in their daily lives. First, I think it's 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 critical that we are part of a broader society and, and world where we're standing up and fighting for justice and democracy and equality. Uh, but I also think uh, you know there's a sense of of real meaning in, in the world when you when you're engaging and fighting with other people on these matters, I wouldn't encourage people to just uh, go alone. I mean, I, I certainly think the power of standing up, even if you're alone, has an inspiring uh, way to, to encourage others. So if that's where you are and wherever space you are, I, I certainly believe you know standing up alone makes sense. But but usually uh, this is a situation where there are others who will join you, kindred spirits who will join you. And when you can find those kindred spirits, that matters even more to create that sense of community and and stand up and and be heard.
2: Is there a particular kindred spirit that you've come across in your lifetime that has really helped you fight your various fights? I would imagine, again, that's probably uh, too many folks to name. No,
1: no, no. I mean, look, apart from my parents, who clearly are among those who've inspired me, uh, Estelle Witherspoon, was an amazing uh, person who influenced me, as well as Nettie Young. They were the co founders of the Freedom Quilting Bee in Wilcox County, Alabama. And they were part of this nonprofit cooperative that I mentioned that my mother had founded and was directing uh, for many years. And I met them as a child. I, I got to know them very well because they would come up for board meetings. Uh, they were involved in the civil rights movement. They taught me a lot of civil rights songs. Uh, you know, they lived in one of the poorest counties. Uh, in the country, still one of the poorest counties in the country. I ended up uh, going during my college senior year to live uh, for a couple of weeks with Estelle Witherspoon to interview people in her community about the civil rights movement and about the work uh, that's happening there in Wilcox County. Uh, and you know, I, I will forever have been impacted uh, by by knowing them and and the fights they waged in their own. Communities for civil rights and for justice and for democracy.
2: I would imagine spending spending those weeks there was a pretty transformational experience for you.
1: And it was, and it came after my my junior year living abroad in India uh, at, in college, which also was transformational to see how uh, people live in a whole other part of the world. My, my father's from Ecuador, and I would go there frequently as a child to visit my family there, and I saw firsthand uh, the disparities of how people are living. Uh, in, in Ecuador. But when I was in India at a much, you know, older age, still young, but it, as a junior in college, uh, that that experience had a transformative impact on me as well.
2: If I asked you to reflect on your current work that you've dedicated your life to for the last 40 years or so, what are you most proud of?
1: I guess I would say I'm most proud of uh, standing up for for justice and democracy in whatever ways I can, and working with others who share those those visions uh, and that kindred spirit and not being afraid uh, to take risks. You know I think we're, what happens, uh, Jake, uh, often is that we're in some ways as we go into our professional world and into uh, you know uh, college studies and graduate studies, we're, we're we're kind of shaped and encouraged to to be safer uh, in the way we act, and that can have uh, ramifications when it comes to standing up for justice and democracy. Because it isn't always comfortable for those you're challenging, but also for those who are doing it. It's not always something that's, that's comfortable, but it matters, and it matters to people who often you know haven't had the opportunity to have their voices heard. Uh, So I think, you know, that that's something I'm proud of, but also one that I, I continue to challenge myself where I can take those risks uh, and make a difference.
2: Transitioning a bit here to our Ring the bell segment, same two questions to each podcast guest. My first question for you, and you've answered this a little bit throughout, but I guess I want to ask it directly. What do you want your legacy to be? Or what do you hope people say about you and the work that you have dedicated Your life towards.
1: I mean, I guess I would hope that they would say I I was a human being who cared about other people and fought uh, uh, for justice and democracy and and stood up uh, on on matters that were critical uh, facing our our society and and our world.
2: And then, much like, and my final question for you: What is your why?
1: My why is to do what I can to be part of broader social justice movements that are fighting for real change for for people all across the the country and and frankly, the world to ensure that everyone has an equal voice, uh, a sense of being able to make decisions in their own lives, uh, the the equality, uh, justice and, and the opportunity to be heard.